Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. A number of years ago, I stood on the beaches of Lahinch. It was a wet and cold winter's day. In that bitter cold and sideways Atlantic rain, I stood side by side with other men seeking adventure and thrill. In the cold and wet we stood in our GAA club shorts. We stood beside each other and looked out to where the sea met the land. The tide was out and the length from us to the water was a few hundred metres. As I stood there, I internalised what we were doing and contemplated the stupidity of men and the simplicity of adventure. Then, go to Bon, a cry went out, charge, and together we raced towards the ICC. As we charged, the athletic abilities of others stood out as they powered to the front in what appeared to be a thirst for glory. I continued to push forward as the beach seemed to go on forever. With each step I felt the sand get wetter and wetter as my feet left marks for where I had been. As I looked forward I watched as those who sought the glory of victory were instantly shocked by the cold of the water. Those who had chosen to go headfirst into the waves were not shrieking with regret. More and more joined them in the sea, but as I witnessed each of them become more and more reluctant to enter the water, I knew soon my time would approach. It was decided that I would not back out of the challenge, and I continued to power on towards the sea. With about 20 metres to go, I felt my body begin to tense up. My mind had transferred the message to my legs to get ready to brace. Fifteen metres to go and my mind asked the question, are you sure you want to do this? Ten metres to go, my legs began to extend their stride as they were getting ready for the plunge. Five metres to go and time slowed down. I heard my head shout to my legs. Here we go. One meter to go, my hands dropped to my side and together my feet pushed into the air. For a few moments I flew through the air like a salmon embracing life. 
First I rose into the air, soon I reached my maximum point and began to return to the earth. I then helplessly awaited the impact of the ocean. As I hit the ocean, I felt a thousand knives pierce through my body as the icy water consumed me without mercy. There were moments in the water where I could not tell you my name due to the cold infecting my very existence. I stuck my head above the waves and watched as the first of us began to retreat to the shore. I took this as a license to get out too. It was when I was back safely, shivering on the shoreline, that my ability to think finally returned to me. And I thought back to that moment when I was in the air awaiting the impact of the cold water. I thought of how that moment was when I understood what was going to happen and could do nothing about it. Soon the water was to consume me and I had no ability to stop it. I understood, however, that once the water hit me, the worst of it was over and life would continue. I also understood that life was the moment of fearing the embrace, but understanding it would be okay. Today I reflect on that very moment and wonder, would the feeling be more liberating or debilitating if I didn't know what would happen once I touched the water? Further to that, what if I had no control over the situation? What if someone else was forcing me to experience this moment? And what if it wasn't a moment of joy? What if it was a total moment of fear, where I would not know what was on the other side of the moment until it had passed? This is a story of that fear. In 1892, in the Galway town of Gertin, a child was born. His name was Michael Griffin. Michael was born to a family with strong roots in the Irish nationalist movement. His father Thomas was a farmer and a well-known and respected member of the movement towards Irish freedom. In the years prior to Michael's birth, Thomas had spent time in British prisons for his role in the Irish National Land League, where he assisted Charles Stuart Parnell in the pushback against the unfair British rule in Ireland. Thomas had been a founding member of the Gertine branch of the Land League and was imprisoned for inciting others wrongfully without legal authority to abstain from paying rent. He had led a movement which pushed back against the high rents which British landlords were forcing on the people of Ireland in an effort to push them off their own land. Michael's mother was also a staunch nationalist who believed in the movement her husband was involved in. She was not entirely active herself in the movement, but behind every great man is an even greater woman. 
When he came of age, Michael was sent to school in Clonkeen Carroll National School and then later to St. Joseph's College in Ballinasloe. During Michael's days in school, he was completely unremarkable. He wasn't top of the class, nor was he bottom. He was perfectly happy to carry on studying away without going above the radar for good or bad reasoning. Although Michael didn't particularly excel during school, he did discover one of his passions during his school days. It was a passion for religion. He had a great sense of God being in his life and he felt a calling towards the priesthood. And so, when the time came to join the real world, as we must all do, and trade the hours of our life for a salary, instead of seeking a trade or to further his education to enter industry, Michael decided it would be the priesthood for him. In 1910, he began attending St. Patrick's College, Maynooth, in order to train to become a priest. Again, during his time here, Michael was relatively unremarkable as a student. He got on with his studies, tried his best, but stayed largely under the radar. He did, during this time, gain a great interest in photography and learning the Irish language, something that was new to him as access to the language wasn't readily available in Ireland under British rule. Seven years after beginning his training, Michael was finally ordained and sent to Clonfort in order to begin his vocation. The following year, he was sent to Galway City. In Galway, in Barna and Furbo, Michael spent his weeks saying Mass, hearing confessions and visiting the local schools. The schools he visited were often in the Irish-speaking areas of Galway and here he managed to improve and soon perfect the Irish language. The other activity which consumed Michael's time in Galway was his joining of the local Gaelic League. It was with the Gaelic League that Michael helped to spread the word that the Irish soul was once again rising, the language was finding new lips on which to lilt, the stories were finding new years and minds to nestle in, and the sports were finding new bodies in which to express the Celtic soul once again. Those who knew Michael through the Gaelic League found him to be a man with great resilience and strength as well as determination. Those who knew him solely as a priest found he liked to just stay under the radar. Outside of the Gaelic League, he rarely expressed his views on the British rule of his home or of anything of a political nature. It was for these reasons that people were surprised when Michael openly supported Padraig O'Malley as he ran as a candidate in the 1918 general election, Padraig being a Sinn Féin candidate. Sinn Féin at the time were gaining a great momentum across Ireland as just two years before this general election, Ireland watched on as the leaders of the 1916 Rising 
or executed in the hope of Irish freedom. In 1920, as Michael was continuing his work, both in the church and the community, a swarm of brutality began to sweep across Ireland. The Crown forces were being looked in the eye by those they deemed serfs, and the serfs were beginning to remove their shackles. A feeling moved across Ireland that no more would our people be bound by the greed of the Crown. It was in the September of that year where the movement first arrived at Michael's door. In the early hours of the morning, before the rooster rose or the dew set, a loud banging was heard at Michael's door. Awoken and confused, he put on his robes and slowly and carefully walked to the door. He gently cracked the door from its frame and peeked out to see what the commotion was all about. A young boy stood there and shouted, Father Griffin, John Quirk from up the road, Father. Father, he's been shot. He'll die, Father, and he's afraid of the other side. Michael ran back into the house, grabbed his Bible, holy water and rosary beads and rushed to John. When they reached John, Michael saw that he was no longer for this world anymore. He had been shot multiple times by the RIC as they sought revenge for the shooting of a colleague in Galway train station. John was deemed the most suitable target for their revenge as he just happened to be around. Michael performed the last rites for John as he faded from this life to the next. Just five weeks later, Patrick Joyce, a school teacher in Berna and an acquaintance of Michael's, vanished. Joyce had been caught writing a series of letters to the Crown forces in which he was naming those who were actively working towards Irish freedoms and the return of Irish culture to this island. Michael was one of those named. The Crown forces put out a notice that Joyce was to be returned to them unharmed. Should he be injured or worse, then action would be taken and somebody would pay the penalty. As a result of his treason towards Beru, Cullen, and Maeve and Bridget, Joyce was executed by the IRA's East Connemara Brigade. Three days after Joyce was taken out, Michael again heard a large rattle on his door. When he answered it, he was told local businessman and councillor Michael Walsh was selected as the revenge point and he was currently floating down the river with a bullet in his head. On the 14th of November, Michael said mass in Furbo and Barna. As the norm on Sunday evenings, Michael and the other local priests played cards, shared stories, and for those who were inclined, had a beer or a whiskey. This evening was slightly different to the norm, however, as Father O'Meehan had not joined them, 
as he had received several death threats from members of the RIC and he was staying in a nearby safe house. Later into the evening, only Michael and his housekeeper Barbara King remained playing cards. Michael announced he was away to bed and Barbara left. It was a dark night and a storm had begun to pelt the coast of Galway as Barbara left. The rain roared down relentlessly and the wind cried the banshee's howl. As Barbara left, she thought she should go back to the house and wait out the storm. She didn't have long to walk, but it wasn't an evening to be outside. She turned around and saw that Michael was standing at his doorway, in front of him a group of men in trench coats. Michael left the doorway to go back into the house and returned with his Bible, rosary beads and holy water. He had also put on his collar, a coat and an umbrella. Barbara went back to see what was happening and was told that somebody nearby was sick and Michael was to give the last rites. The following morning, people were confused as Michael did not show to say Mass as normal. Telegraphs were sent out to local priests to see did anybody know where he was. No positive responses were received. Word spread across Galway that Michael was missing and everyone apart from the RIC, the local police, took up the call to go looking for him. In the House of Commons, Hammer Greenwood, Chief Secretary for Ireland, stated that Michael was an extreme Sinn Féiner and suggested that he had been abducted by vengeful friends of Joyce or perhaps by members of Father Griffin's own congregation. Winston Churchill, then Minister for War, attempted to confuse the issue further by prompting the Chief Secretary to say Sinn Féiners were responsible. One Galway priest, Father Davis, stated his fervent belief that no Catholic Irishman, and indeed no Irishman in the district, would injure a hair of Father Griffin's head. The days came and went, and there was still no sign of Michael. On the evening of November 20th, the lives of the people of Galway were rocked when the end tails of a coat were spotted sticking out of the bog in Barna. The coat was dug out and wrapped inside it was the body of Father Michael Griffin. I can't tell you what Michael's last moments on earth were like. What I can tell you is that he lay in the grave with a single bullet hole in his head. Michael had been executed. Since learning Michael's story, I often wonder what his final hours on earth were like. Did he know when he left the house that night that he would never return? 
did he know when he was being questioned by the RIC about the things he had heard in confession that he would soon breathe no more? Did he know that his silence and honour would lead to his execution? When the gun was placed against his head, did he know what would happen on the other side of life? Was he comforted by his faith? Did he question his existence? When the trigger was pulled, did the brief second feel like hours? Was he calm? A military court of inquiry concluded that Michael had been killed as the result of a gunshot wound in the head, fired felonously, willfully and with malice aforethought by some person or persons unknown, and that such person or persons unknown were guilty of murder. The Bishop of Galway wrote, Father Griffin was shot by government forces. A murder like this is almost or altogether unparalleled in Irish life. Frank Crozier, who was the commander of the auxiliaries in Ireland at the time of the disappearance, made the sensational claim that Michael had been executed by auxiliaries and a senior official in Dublin Castle suppressed the evidence. Nobody was ever held accountable for Michael's murder at the hands of the Crown forces in Ireland. The music for this episode was written, performed and produced by myself, Ryan O'Halloran. The story was researched and scripted by Oren. If you want to help to support this podcast, please consider buying us a coffee at www.buymeacoffee.com forward slash we the Irish and leaving us a review on your podcast app. Ryan Isanandum, Gurav Mahakut, Slán